Everybody, welcome to Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. This is your host, Eric Mann. I'm in studio with Channing Martinez, the co-host and producer of Voices, and with Jeanette Charles, a very important organizer in L.A. and a friend of the Venezuelan Revolution. And today's show is basically about U.S. hands off Venezuela, U.S. hands off everybody, you know, in the world, including black people and indigenous people and Latino people inside the borders of the United States. So this is a difficult show for me because so much of what the United States is doing right now is, is heartbreaking, but of course that's what it does. And Jeanette and I have been working on a, I'll be doing like an eight or nine minute introduction about the concept of self-determination and in particular for the Venezuelan people. As you know today, there's a, already been, uh, we hope, a failed coup that took place, we believe, today. And Jeanette's going to give us a lot of the facts on the ground. So first of all, Jeanette, welcome to Voices from the Frontlines. Thank you so much, Eric, for having me in on this really historic day where we can defend the Venezuelan people and their right to self-determination. I'm very happy to be here. And we want to use this show in a lot of different ways. I mean, we are, first of all, Streaming live on Facebook at Eric Mann Speaks. We're streaming live on kpfk.org. This is going to be up on our show uh, website, voicesfromthefrontlines.org. We urge you to register. Just go on the site, voicesfromthefrontlines.org, and hit register. Uh, Channing produces a, a weekly newsletter that tells you ahead of time what's coming on, usually three or four hours ahead. And then we often have the show later in the week. We also send out an email with a link. So we're doing everything we can. And Jeanette, who I've known for a long time and whose work I respect tremendously, we sort of have the idea of this being sort of a show of record that we could use for education to the movement. So we're going to do the best we can to explain the basic concepts. I just want to read a little bit about Jeanette's background. Uh, Jeanette Charles is the daughter of the Haitian diaspora, popular educator, journalist, and organizer. She's a longtime member of the Chiapas Support Committee, an international solidarity liaison with Venezuela Analysis, the only English-language multimedia news organization based in Venezuela. Jeanette has worked alongside 
grassroots movement and pursued her graduate studies at the Bolivarian University of Venezuela with the Catedra Libre Africa, a community-based research institute focused on Afro-Venezuelan, African diasporic, and African continental histories. So great to have you. She's also a friend of the Labor Community Strategy Center. Thank you so much, Eric. So let me try to say what we're trying to say. Let's start with the immediate. Uh, There was and has been a revolution in in Venezuela that's in fact a marvelous revolution. It is only good. Revolutions are made up of real people trying to make real changes in a real society. We live at a time when the United States will not allow any free revolution to happen. The Russian Revolution took place only by protecting itself from the invasion of 13 different countries. And then it set up a barrier, what they called an Iron Curtain. I would argue that's not a bad term because there must be some kind of protection for revolutions in the age of U.S. imperialism. The Cuban people had a wonderful revolution in 1959. By 1960 and 61, the United States was working to sabotage it. It is a miracle that the Cuban revolution still exists, is still socialist, 90 miles away from a nuclear madman. And yet, there are people on the U.S. left who say, I don't know, I heard there's some political prisoners in Cuba. Yes, I should hope so. I mean, if people are trying to overthrow the government of Cuba, or people are funded by the CIA, yes, there needs to be some ability to restrain them, and that's what a prison does. They are political prisoners of counter-revolution. It's a miracle how open Cuba is, a miracle how open it is given the constant U.S. penetration. So here's the fundamental dilemma of all revolutions. You want to have the most open society possible But when the U.S. means open society, it means open to U.S. penetration. That's what the open door, when I was studying in college, I was all for the open door policy in China until my professor, uh, Walter Lefebvre, pointed out, no, what the United States meant by the open door was England was trying to keep the United States out of China, and it wanted an open door to oppress the people of China. Now, we, we moved to Venezuela in... I believe it was uh, 2006, Manuel Criollo and I went to Venezuela for the first re-election of Hugo Chavez. It was the most miraculous election I had ever seen in my whole life. We were staying in a very nice hotel, and the bells started going off at 5 in the morning. Church bells were going off. And I said to Manuel, we weren't in the same room, but I said, what, what's up with this? He says, they're getting out the vote. We got out there. The, the polls didn't open until, let's say, 9. By 6, there were thousands and thousands of people who had been lining up all night waiting to vote. This was their chance to vote. And then there was this one woman online. She was very well-dressed up. She was rather a European-looking uh, Venezuelan. And I said, are you going to vote for Chavez? She says, no, of course not. She says, because Chavez is going to give everything I have to those people. And she pointed to thousands of people online. I said, well, you got it right. That is the essence of the 
revolution. She's not going to take everything you have, by the way. You'll still have plenty left over. That's not even true. But he's going to take some of what you have and give it to those people who are the people of Venezuela. It was miraculous uh, that night. It was raining, and Manuel and I were out, and in the rain, they announced the final victory, which was a landslide. The election commission, yes, they had an election commission, which was bipartisan, validated the whole election. Jimmy Carter even said it was a totally free election. And yet the United States is constantly attacking the people of Venezuela for not having free elections. After the death of Hugo Chavez, which is a one in a billion person that no revolution can afford to lose. Nicolas Maduro comes in. He is less charismatic. He is less, no one can be Hugo Chavez. And yet, from my vantage point, he's done an amazing job of replacing Chavez and being a, a true national leader under a set of circumstances that none of us could even comprehend. So how is it possible that in the U.S. Congress, they actually allowed to pass a bill saying we want to allocate this amount of money to overthrow the government of Venezuela, and they say all in favor, and it passes. Imagine if the Venezuelan people passed a motion to set up a, an agency in the United States to overthrow the U.S. government. There would be a nuclear bomb dropped on Venezuela. So here's the sort of punchline, that we in the United States have to support the right of self-determination of all the people all over the world and not judge the social systems that they construct. You were told that you didn't like Saddam Hussein and then the United States killed millions of people in Iraq. You were told you didn't like Gaddafi in Libya, so let's destroy that country. You were told you didn't like the communists in Vietnam, so the United States felt able to murder four million people. We can't allow the United States government to overthrow the government of Venezuela as it did the government of Chile. So the, we were talking today, Jeanette and Channing and I, the Strategy Center is going to, as a small contribution, it's going to draft a very simple letter that we're going to send out to groups in the movement saying, all of us call on every elected official who's running for any office in the United States to make a commitment to, number one, no U.S. interference in the internal affairs of Venezuela, remove any programs from Venezuela funded by the U.S. Congress to overthrow the government of Venezuela, to remove the CIA from Venezuela. And of course, before we draft the actual language, we'll work with you, Jeanette, and all the other groups in the solidarity movement. But the last thing that Jeanette and I were talking about uh, that we want to speak to people in the audience about is there are certain people on the U.S. left, of all things, that decide that they've had enough of Cuba or enough of China or enough of Russia and they become disenchanted with other people's revolutions, perhaps because they're unable to make one of their own. They don't grasp what a revolution is under a worldwide dictatorship. And they contribute to the attitude that allows the U.S. to intervene. And we want to stop that. And Voices from the Frontlines and the Strategy Center is committed to a hands-off Venezuela and let the people of Venezuela have their own revolution. Uh, with that... I turn to you, my friend, and respond. Yes, Channing, sure. Uh, just a little technical announcement. Sure. That uh, Facebook is not letting us live stream for some reason. Um, I assume that it's, uh, you know, just a glitch, but you never know. Um, so we are live streaming on Twitter at Fight Soul Cities and on YouTube as well. Fight Soul Cities? At Fight Soul Cities. Okay, and that. 
wouldn't be anything about freedom of speech involved in this at all. So, Jeanette, I, I really want to thank you a lot for the work you've done and the commitment you've made. Maybe just bounce off a little of what I started mm-hmm. and then get into the specifics of what we're trying to address today. Of course. Um, definitely. I mean, Venezuela, for so many millions of people around the world, represents an incredible revolutionary process that has essentially, in the last 20 years, made great strides in questions of national sovereignty and self-determination um, and essentially reparations. Venezuela is w- emerging as a socialist nation, trying to... Uh, redistribute the wealth that has been denied um, millions of Venezuelans for decades, if not centuries, under European colonialism and U.S. imperialism, you know, first with the nationalization of oil and the redistribution of wealth and resources into social services. In the last six years alone, Venezuela has built um, over two million homes um, in public housing. And I really want to emphasize this because that is such a crisis in the United States and globally. Um, And a country of 32 million people, and they've built two million homes um, for families that did not have their own homes before, working class people um, who've really, you know, this is not a privilege, it's a right. Um, and so we've seen, you know, incredible achievements in education and healthcare. And, you know, just to kind of respond to um, your anecdote about the 2005 elections, you know, we have seen in the last 20 years, 25 democratic elections in Venezuela all different levels from presidential elections to the National Constituent Assembly elections to municipal elections to legislative elections. And each and every election have been has been observed by international institutions, organizations, delegations. Um, with Venezuela analysis, we had a, a presidential election observation delegation last May. And everyone from the activists, the lawyers and the journalists that we had on that delegation incredibly honored but also very surprised um, to see that what they were hearing and listening to in mainstream U.S. media and even some independent and allegedly progressive and left (laughs) media in the United States were painting Venezuela. Um, You know, and I always like to emphasize that in Venezuela, you know, democracy is measured by popular participation and their polls, not their polls, excuse me, their elections. Um, Whereas the United States, it's popularity polls. Um, And in Venezuela, the people have exercise their right again, you know, to defend the revolutionary process by electing President Nicolas Maduro, whose government has been under attack and the Venezuelan people have been under attack very steadily for many years during Chavez's administration and more heavily so um, since Nicolas Maduro took presidency in 2013. And we've seen in the last year from assassination attempts to the uh, self-declaration of Juan Guaido as interim president that the coup is continuing and the U.S.-backed um, forces are becoming desperate. Tell us just have one background, and then I want to go to the present, is tell us about the racial composition of the Venezuelan people in terms of Afro-Venezuelans of and indigenous Venezuelans. Of course. Venezuela is a black-majority country. Right. More than 60% of the population identifies of African descent or black um, in the 2010 census. Um, it was the first time that people were allowed to... Um, declare themselves as Afro- Afro-descendant or African-descendant, right. and overwhelmingly people identify across um, across that spectrum. There are dozens of indigenous nations across the country. There's actually an indigenous university in Venezuela, in Bolivar State, that has really um, captured the spirit of, of historically um, revolutionary resistance by behalf of the indigenous people. Um, People from across the country go there. Um, there have been a lot of rights um, that have been gained, both for indigenous peoples and Afro-Venezuelans. Um, a no discrimination law has been 
you know, implemented across the country. Different types of a cooperation models and agreements economically, politically, and culturally have been signed um, between Venezuela, Caribbean countries, and um, the African continent. Mm-hmm. And the one really important thing I want to emphasize is that mm-hmm. in um, Venezuela's kind of reparations model is that it did host the first ever international reparations summit in May of last year, which May is wow. Afro-Venezuelan History Month. Wow. So folks are really, you know, Venezuela is doing a lot of incredible work to change this historical tide um, that we've been living under, which is like the U- U.S. imperialism and U.S. empire. Um, Venezuela is challenging, you know, the legacies of, of, U- of U.S. imperialism and European colonialism and saying, you know, we have come to defend not only our independence, but demand what's ours. It's wonderful. I mean, for me, as you know, the strategy center... I was very deeply moved at the World Conference Against Racism uh, by a much deeper conversation about reparations by mm-hmm. African people that I'd ever heard. So we want to get more involved in that and maybe go, go to the next one. Mm-hmm. Tell us uh, in the immediacy now, what's, given sanctions, given yes. what's the level of direct, overt U.S. involvement? And what's the, tell us a little bit about what the right wing is doing to destabilize the government. Well, you know, the Venezuelan opposition that we most see in the United States, um, you know, that has the face of Leopoldo Lopez, who was a Venezuelan or is a former uh, Venezuelan politician uh, who was the kind of part of the intellectual architects of the Guarimba violence that we saw in 2014, 2015, and 2017, in addition to Juan Guaido, who is a new face in the Venezuelan opposition in many ways. Um, This opposition that calls on violence, that calls upon the United States to intervene militarily or to allegedly deliver, you know, humanitarian aid, um, is a radical wing of the opposition that does not have as much support as people in the United States actually would believe them to have. And um, is one that will pursue any option on the table. So we see the the implementation and the intervention of U.S. economic sanctions. Uh, Canada also has economic sanctions, different countries in Europe. Um, Also, in the last uh, few months, there have been so many... um, you know, illegal seizures of Venezuelan assets in different international banks um, in Britain, in Portugal, um, you know, billions of dollars. Uh, the cost of economic sanctions ranges anywhere between 23 billion and several hundred billions of dollars just in the last uh, four to five years alone. Um, and we've seen the impact of economic sanctions in the case of Cuba, for example, with the blockade um, for decades, which has really prevented um, Cuba to be able to develop on its own terms. Um, and in spite of that, you know, Cuba and Venezuela, for example, have done incredible work to try and maintain a semblance of normalcy in their countries and to actually meet the material needs of their people. You know, Venezuela in the last 20 years has built a diplomatic model that's based on reciprocity, respect, cooperation. And, you know, mutual support. So, you know, countries across Central America, the Caribbean, you know, we've seen incredible ways where Venezuela has actually been able to, you know, meet the material needs of their people in spite of actually having very less um, economic resources to do so or challenges. Um, Because the other uh, major deficit has been uh, the changing in global oil prices. I was just going to (laughs) say Of course, you know, in Venezuela... um, 
even though in both uh, President um, Hugo Chavez's uh, uh, pl national plan, El Plan de la Patria, which was from 2013-2019, and Nicolás Maduro, his plan, De la Patria, from 2019-2025, both explicitly talk about diversifying the Venezuelan economy, it's not that easy to move from uh, oil-producing, you know, monocrop-dependent right. culture economy, right. which is a colonial legacy. It's not Venezuela, by its own design, chose to only produce oil. Um but now in this era of, you know, Venezuela trying to, you know, become more independent, trying to become a country that can actually uh, produce what it, you know, consumes nationally, like Nicaragua, for example, produces 90% of what it actually consumes. Wow. Um, and in Venezuela, people want to do that. People want to do that with their communes. They want to do that with their agriculture. But that type of thing takes time. That's not something that happens in five years. And it's not necessarily something that only can happen in 20 years. And even less so when you have the United States, which is like the greatest empire of our times, um, you know, essentially breathing down your throat and attacking and dropping bombs, not just in, you know, the literal sense, right, uh, which we've seen, like you mentioned in Cuba, but um, through banking and also through right. other measures, the media and mainstream media uh, manipulation, um, political intervention, et cetera. Uh, the voice you're hearing is Jeanette Charles, uh, who's just done really excellent work as a friend of the Venezuelan revolution and also as an interpreter of the Venezuelan revolution to uh, particularly oppressed nationality communities inside the United States. Channing, were you going to say something? Yeah. So you brought up oil, and there was one thing I must have been reading about last year about the 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 monetary system being out of whack. Um, <laughs> do you, you want to – like I heard stories about, you know – you know, the money being worth mm -hmm. a dollar one mm -hmm. day and, you know, $20 mm -hmm. the next day. In. Yeah, there's definitely, because of the, the fluctuating prices with global oil, it's very hard for Venezuela. And this is not unique necessarily to this time. Oil fluctuates, you know, regularly. Um, but it's definitely more extreme and severe currently. And what that does is it really distorts the value of the Venezuelan Bolivar. So in the last several years, uh, Venezuelan currency has changed, you know, the price of what you can buy with several hundred Bolivares or several hundred thousand or several hundred millions of Bolivares have changed almost every day. And we've seen this in like Argentina with hyperinflation in different periods, um, you know, in Chile and other places as well. And um, the Venezuelan government has done the best that it, it can to reintroduce new currency, which is what it did last year at the at the time of the attempted um, the assassination attempt was right when Venezuela um, essentially re they introduced a new set of currency, new economic reforms. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, these things don't change overnight. So currency doesn't necessarily having new currency doesn't necessarily change the, the value of the currency immediately. Um, on top of the fact that there is um, an illegal exchange rate in Venezuela, um, you know, which is through an app called Dollar Today or Dollar Today, which you can actually download, um, which is operated by um, Venezuelan opposition figures based in the United States. Um, and they control this illegal currency rate. Um, so you have, you know, U.S. dollars circulating illegally in Venezuela, which affects what people can have access to and what, you know, the Venezuelan Bolivar actually val is valued. You know, in, in listening to the story, I mean, one of the things I'm struck by is how great the Soviet Union was and how great why China is doing what it's doing and how the United States is trying to overthrow China, by the way. So I think what I just want to go slow backwards mm -hmm. to some of the people in the U.S. Let me try to say it as clearly as I can. Um, the people in the U.S. as a group 
are not very good organizers. The people in the United States, including myself, we're very privileged people. We can't even barely at times conceptualize this conversation. I mean, you're trying to run a country where the CIA is destroying your, uh, your monetary system, where you're in a world banking system and you want to be able to trade. So in order to trade, you have to participate in the banking system. And then as I, Jeanette just explained, but the banking system is allowed to appro just appropriate your assets and Venezuela can't figure out how to get billions of dollars of his own money. There was an article, I mean, you know, I just, it's the white chauvinism of the U.S. that I remember in the Nation magazine, some environmentalist wrote 15 years ago, mm -hmm. well, Chavez is doing this on an oil economy. Yeah? I mean, what else do you not want people who are Afro-descendants and what else would you like them not to do that doesn't please you? It's sickening is the point. I don't want to give it the moral validity that we have to answer these absurd questions where you don't even understand. I don't even know how they're running the government. Mm -hmm. I don't know how in the face of these sanctions, in the face of the CIA, we had a discussion where they're caught in a dilemma, which is any smart government would suppress an armed opposition. And yet, if the CIA is significantly behind the armed opposition, and then if the Maduro government, out of self-defense, simply protects itself, then the CIA goes to MSNBC with all the liberal Democrats and attacks the government for being dictatorial. And people in the United States say, well, I guess maybe it's okay to overthrow their government. Where do people in the United States believe that we have any right to overthrow anyone's mm -hmm. government? Because the problem then is if people believe that, then we have to make the case, no, 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 don't overthrow this one. It's a good government. But it's not your government. It's mm -hmm. not your country. You don't mm -hmm. own it. How do we break the colonial mentality that's so deep in the left among liberals? You know, we're arguing almost against ourselves because they accept the colonial mind frame. Mm -hmm. No, and I think that's incredibly important. And just to backtrack a little bit um, to comment on your earlier point is, you know, so there are so many things that Venezuela is doing that people in the United States just do not have any idea. That's right. um, so even with, uh, you know, an economy that is based in petroleum and oil extraction, Venezuelans are acutely aware of the effects of that on Mother Earth and nature. They're not oblivious to That's that right. fact, you know, which is why Venezuelans have taken up an eco-socialist approach, you know. Chavez was explicit about, you know, the need to really diversify the economy in order to respect ecological environments. Venezuela is a very biodiverse country. Yes. Um, and so I think it also is not it's the colonial mind frame that's also undermining um, Venezuelans intelligence. Like people are, are very aware of what they're doing and how they want to um, revolutionize their society. Um, and I really wanted to emphasize, you know, even looking at Bolivia gets that same critique over and over again. Right. And the Bolivian economic plan is perhaps one of the most sophisticated in all of Latin America and the Caribbean because it's a hundred year long economic plan that talks right. about how to adjust and to switch into different industries at different points in time. You know, people are, you know, the the caretakers of their lands. They know how to maneuver through all these different questions. And, and I think it's, it's just incredible how little... 
um, respect, really, that you know we are are giving. And so I think this has been an, a really incredible moment the last several months because I have seen a very significant shift in how I think the left and progressive forces in the United States are engaging with Venezuela. Um, for the better, you for think? the better, I think in many ways. You know, people after Chavez passed away, um, there was kind of a a huge step back that people took. Um, folks disengaged largely because there was a lot of confusion, which was intentional by the United States, of course, you know, this demonization of Maduro. Um, that, you know, and I always say about, I always talk about how the criticism against Maduro is oftentimes really associated with the fact that he's a worker. He was a union organizer. He right. was a bus driver, right. <laughs> you know, for right. this drive center that's actually really relevant. <laughs> um you know, and he he's taken on an incredible leadership role. He wasn't in the military. He was part of the civilian forces that were part of the Movimiento Quinta República, which was the Fifth Republic movement during the 90s, right, that brought, you know, Chavez into power, um, you know, and brought the people into power, which, you know, resulted in the rewriting of their constitution, which protects rights for all different people, for young people, for women, for students, for indigenous folks, for Afri Afro-Venezuelans. Um, you know, Venezuela is one of the few places in the world that actually, I think, if not the only place where they've um, uh, passed legislation that protects seeds from patenting. That says like Whoa. la ley de semillas, wow, which is a law that says that you cannot patent a seed because it is a living being, um, you know, and that's actually trying to encourage and incentivize people to return to the countryside. You know, communes in Venezuela, there's a lot of incredible literature on communes in English, actually, um, via Venezuela analysis. And George Chicarello Mar um, has a book, Building the Commune. Thousands of communes in Venezuela where people are cultivating their natural foods where people are harvesting, where people are, you know, manufacturing different types of goods, um, where they're trading with one another. Um, there's all these different types of markets and systems that people are doing that are actually part of the ways in which Venezuelans are surviving this onslaught of economic attacks. Well, one thing I was thinking about is that when we were trying to build a movement against the war in Vietnam, which took a long time, but not as long as the people of Vietnam fought. Mm -hmm. We did do work with elected officials, with, in particular Congress, to try to get Congress to vote no on uh, appropriations bill for the war. And I st want to go still back to mm -hmm. uh, what's it going to take to get, like, a couple of thoughts. As you're speaking, mm -hmm. Jeanette, I'm already thinking we're going to transcribe this show <laughs> and make it into a pamphlet. Because a, a lot of things you're saying are great, and that's we can do that. Uh, I always try to figure out what are we going to do, mm -hmm. you know, and what are we going to do. Course. So um, I think this idea of a letter that will just start talking to people about it is important. Wh who are the people in Congress who want to have this conversation? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that mm -hmm. for a minute. You know, um, our conversation earlier, you know, the leadership that I find the most responsive in Congress is actually Ilhan Omar's office, right. which is not surprising, right. Um, right. just given how politically clear she is on literally every subject, <laughs> um, nationally and internationally. Right. Um, and she's come under a lot of scrutiny by Democrats, by Republicans. Um, and I know actually today, I think there was a mobilization in her support. Angela yes, Davis was there. Was you know, so I feel like today is actually quite a historic moment um, as we kind of uh, descend upon May 1st, International Work. Workers Day um, and thinking about how to bridge um, these international questions of, of a struggle against U.S. empire. Um, but, you know, Ilhan Omar was the person who 
uh, interrogated Elliot Abrams, who is responsible for hun- for does- dozens, if not hundreds of thousands of deaths in, yes, yes. in Central America, right. um, who is now the U.S. Special Envoy to Venezuela um, and also served under the Bush administration during the 2002 coup against um, Hugo Chavez. So it's definitely this pos- this administration is positioning itself very clearly uh, for a type of, if not you know, direct military intervention, uh, continued paramilitary intervention. Today I was listening to Samuel Moncada, who is the Venezuelan um, uh, ambassador to the United Nations. He gave a press uh, press conference this morning uh, where he talked about how prior to the um, U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, there were 5,000 um, staff officials at the U.S. Embassy. Currently in Bogota, Mexi- uh, Bogota Colombia, excuse me, there are 3,000 um, U.S. officials. Um, and, right. you know, he's announced them as these are not uh, 3,000 U.S. officials who are concerned about the well-being of Colombians. They are there to essentially design and carry out war against um, Venezuela and other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean. I also want to make a special note that in Haiti, um, the U.S. is building the largest <laughs> the largest embassy of the Western Hemisphere, right. um, only second, I think, to the one in Afghanistan. Um, Which is a Trojan horse. Exactly. And it, if you if you have the honor of um, traveling to Haiti, you leave Port-au-Prince Airport, and it's literally less than a mile or two, I think, a few miles away from the airport. Um, and it's, you know, g- gigantic. And it's, you know, so definitely the United States is, in many ways, as uh, different Venezuelans have denounced already, trying to recolonize the Americas, you yes, know, yes. after we've seen such a beautiful show in the last two, three decades of revolutionary struggle that has been under attack, you know, Bolivia, we've seen under attack in different times. Ecuador, we've seen with Lenin Moreno. Um, Brazil, Lula is imprisoned. Argentina, (laughs) you know. Um, And I just want to mention, too, is that the Dominican Republic actually this week is um, is commemorating the, you know, 54th year of U.S. invasion. Um, You know, and these are other moments in the Caribbean. Venezuela is both a South American and a Caribbean country. And if we look back at the history of Grenada, the history of Dominican Republic, um, these are all intertwined. Wow. Um, You got all that, folks? (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) no, Jeanette's got a great mind in there. And, uh, it's encyclopedic in the very best sense. I want to just slow a few th- thoughts mm-hmm. down. Uh, first of all, you're on, let's go slow, you're on Voices from the Frontline. That's where we are. We've really been in Venezuela and Dominican Republic and Haiti, but mm-hmm. we're right now on Voices from the Frontlines, your national and hopefully international movement building show contributing to that. The voice that you just heard is Jeanette Charles, is also in studio with Jenny Martinez. I'm Eric Mann. Uh, I began my work with the Congress of Racial Equality and with the newer community union movement, the Students for Democratic Society, and the war in Vietnam was the central contradiction that in many ways moved the black movement forward, gave the black movement in the United States a a greater sense of international understanding of itself. Mm -hmm. Of of course, it's ties to Africa. So on the positive, um, one of the things that I, I want to just take a few thoughts on is that somehow in my efforts to figure out, I see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Johan Omar, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Rashida Tlaib as pivotal in unlocking the beginning of an anti-imperialist resistance inside of Congress. Mm-hmm. 
during the war in Vietnam, there were two senators, Wayne Morris and uh, Ernest Gruning. Gruning was from uh, uh, Alaska. Morris was from um, Oregon. They were not anti-imperialist, but they stood up against the war. The votes were going 98 to 2 in Congress. And Johnson was besides himself. He did everything he could to kill those two guys because even if the vote is 98 to Mm -hmm. 2, there's two people, two Mm -hmm. senators saying, no, this war is wrong. We should get out of Vietnam. And that led to George McGovern. It led to many others. So I think that the three young women of color Mm -hmm. are all from third world backgrounds as well are opening up a tremendous conversation. I thought it was very important that Elizabeth Warren Mm -hmm. wrote a piece praising Ocasio-Cortez in time. That's a choice she's making. She knows where that young woman is going. She says, you wait, she's just getting started. I thought that was terrific. I think Bernie's got to be pushed very far because uh, I just always want to say, if you believe in free elections, then take away those two senators from Vermont there should not be 800,000 white people to be allowed to have two senators, and I mean it in the most serious way. So I think protecting them, and just one more thought I wanted to say is that, you know, when Ilhar, Ilhar Omar said, some people did something, mm-hmm. what she was trying to say is something happened on September 11th, but you have to give the name of the specific group a specific number of people did a specific thing. You can't say the Arabs attacked us. You can't say the Muslims attacked us. You can't say Iraq attacked us, which you had no proof of. You can't say Afghanistan attacked us. So when she tried to simply defuse an anti-imperialist hysteria, they went after her with guns blazing, and I'm very worried about her safety. Mm -hmm. And there's a relevance to this because... The United States has a very ferocious racism and a ferocious pro It's not a moderate, uh, it's a hysteria. And so what I'm trying to put together is how do we pressure the Democrats and how do we build a movement for self-determination for the people of Venezuela and the people of Haiti and stuff? Mm-hmm. No, and I think that's an incredible point, particularly as, you know, in the U.S., the concept or the idea of socialism is becoming so much more relevant to everyday conversation. People are clearly dissatisfied at the very least with what we see day to day with capitalism. I think generally people in the United States, by and large, particularly oppressed nationalities, people are you know, very concerned with, you know, U.S. threats of warfare. We've seen the devastation across the Middle East. We've seen what's happening in Yemen. We've seen the refugee crises, the millions of children um, that have been murdered, um, you know, to fill the pockets of a very small elite in this country um, that's very white supremacist um, at its core. And I do think there needs to be a push, as you mentioned, Eric, um, on progressive Democrats. I think there needs to be a push in our social movements to make the connection between domestic issues and international um, conditions. I think, you know, the immigrants' rights movement has done a lot of incredible work to do so, um, particularly with the Central American um, refugee caravan that has reached the border. Um, I think there needs to be more work done to build those connections. But I think they're very clear, particularly when you think about Honduras post-2009 with, you know, the U.S.-backed coup under Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is definitely a bipartisan, uh, you know, coalition. This is not just a Republican or a Trump administration um, tactic, uh, war 
you know, is both Democrat and Republican in this country. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for oppressed nationalities, the nationality peoples, um, we ha- have a, a level of accountability. Um, this is both about our lives and about the lives of our brothers and sisters all around the world um, who are fighting to, you know, for peace. Essentially, you know, I think in many ways people underestimate the value of peace and justice and humanity <laughs> in today's world because it's become so commercialized um, and it, it hasn't, you know, returned to its very, you know, communist and very um, radical roots and we need to reclaim them and i think that's incredibly important at this particular moment well the voices you're listening to from the front lines is eric man jeanette charles jenny martinez you're on kpfk 90.7 fm that's right uh streaming live on the web on kpfk.org check out our website please uh voicesfromthefrontlines.com go on and register we're getting three or four or five people a week which is not enough. We'd like to get 10 or 15. We have about four or 5,000 people we send uh, this list to. About 500 to 1,000 seem to be alive. I don't know what the other 4,000 are doing. But, uh, but we, we're try- if you listen to the urgency, my, my mind as an organizer just always is trying to dream up something. So for instance, the Strategy Center is working in South LA in the black and Latino communities. I think we should put out a really good flyer about the Afro-descendant movement in Venezuela, which mm-hmm. a lot of people and don't even know or that what would it be like for Hugo Chavez, an indigenous man, to be elected president and, as you said, a union leader. So I'm just trying to figure out the only way that I don't get depressed is I always have to think of something new to do, which is why I don't sleep very well. But I'm always trying to do something mm-hmm. beyond feel despondent, frankly, about this because mm-hmm. on some level, it's so cruel, it's so beyond that beautiful people are building a beautiful country and the United States won't let them do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, at the core of mm-hmm. what this story is about. And people in the United States are not as internationalist because the black movement is not as international as it used to be. The Latino movement isn't either. The communist tradition is not as strong as it, as it used to be. And so internationalism is not as strong. But for those of us who do understand it out there on Voices from the Front Lines, uh, let's see everything we can do to help the people of Venezuela. I'm going to take a chance to go on the phones. Ricky, is that okay? And we'll see if anybody wants to talk to us. Is that okay, Chani? Your point, please. Yeah, so I like what both of you guys are saying. And for me, I just feel... I feel a lot of the urgency and the pressure because I think, yeah, I'm thinking a lot about the black movement and how it's not very international, right? Um, you know, it's not, I don't want to pivot two different things against each other, but to be frank, you know, hundreds and thousands of people came out in the streets to see Nipsey Hussle walk around, you know, do his victory lap, which was very beautiful. Um, and he did very great things. And I've you know, I'm just trying to figure out in my head as an organizer, how do I organize folks to have that same amount of rage against the United States that's carrying genocide out blatantly right across, you know, right on the public media, national media against, you know, a country of mostly black people. Where is your outrage in, in some sense? Um, well, that's your job as an organizer. That's right. <laughs> that's your answer is to... Go among the people and and spread the word and have people like Jeanette Charles who 
is getting a PhD and going deep, deep, deep into this, as well as interrupting our studies, or you could say interrupting our organizing with our studies once in a while. <laughs> That's <laughs> probably, probably better said. Probably better That's way better, right. better way said, yes. <laughs> we pause for a moment to remember I'm in a PhD program. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- we're going to go to the phones, 818-985-5735, if you'd like to, like to talk to Jeanette, Charles, and us about how to support the Venezuelan revolution. That's the conversation. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be pretty strict that that's the subject. Try to be a good sport. Most of our listeners are. 818-985-5735. Uh, you're on Voices from the Frontlines. I have a question, Jeanette. Yes. Um, why are you choosing to get a PhD? And I mean in the positive sense. Why do you think that's important? And, and what led you as mm-hmm. a dedicated person to make that as a specific tactical choice? Mm-hmm. You know, I, in many ways, uh, my organizing comes a lot out of popular education um, and the belief that, as Channing was talking about, how do we get our folks engaged enough to take action and to organize not only in our own interests, but in the interest of, of our peoples all around the world. And, you know, I did go to school in Venezuela as well, and I saw a different um, type of educational process and type of commitment Um, The Bolivarian University of Venezuela is a revolutionary university. It's a public university. It's a university that is free to all. Um, You know, from it's all undergraduate and graduate studies. All Venezuelans go there for free. International students like myself pay very little. There are many international students who are subsidized um, and go there for free as well. And, you know, my program was in multipolarity and the integration of our America, which talks about a world in which many worlds fits, which is also a Zapatista concept, um, for folks who are, you know, committed to the Zapatista struggle for autonomy. And in Venezuela, they practice a decolonial pedagogy. They're trying to figure out how to use the educational institute uh, institutions in a way that benefit the people. And so all of our research and work had to be rooted in the community, had to be part of a political process, had to respond to the, the, the plan of the country, of the patria. Um, and so a lot of my work was with Afro-Venezuelan people, continues to be with Afro-Venezuelan people, um, and the history of solidarity between Haiti and Venezuela. Um, which is a revolutionary relationship that dates back to the to before 1804 when um, Haiti became the first um, black republic of the Western Hemisphere and essentially trying to reconcile how to both manage um, state-led cooperation integration with grassroots movements and solidarity. And I think that, you know, in the United States, the academy and the, and the university is used in a way to wield um, ideological warfare against our people and particularly on the left, um, just saturates. Yeah. We are saturated with um, neoliberal ideologies that are prevalent in the academy and disguised as radicalism. And I think it's incredibly important for those of us who believe in revolution to take every available place that we can. And I think that we need to produce ideas. We need to produce knowledge that's rooted in our liberation. And we need to document the histories of our people. Sounds great to me. (laughs) Uh, Really. And I'm very glad you're doing that level of, you know, intense work. We're happy to say we have some callers. Uh, Bill from Lake Elsinore, you're on with Eric and Jeanette and Channing on Voices from the Frontlines. Jeanette, very fascinating. You're awesome. Hi, Eric. (laughs) I was in line at Union Station purchasing a ticket a while back here, and when I turn around, I see this this couple, could have been over 20 years old. They're the most vibrant, beautiful, natural, down-to-earth, stunning, and their energy was just 
fascinating. I said, where are you kids from, if I may ask? And they both say, sometimes it's Venezuela. And I said, Presidente de Venezuela? They go, Hugo Chavez. And I just gave him a big thumbs up and wished him so well. And I helped him out getting the Magic Mountain. And it, it just fell <laughs> <laughs> in love with him. And I'm, I'm completely behind you, Jeanette. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Eric. All right, thank you, brother. And helping the Venezuelan people get to Magic Mountain, you can't do better than that, brother. That was really nice. Uh, really, uh, Anna Conkin, uh Hi, Anna. Welcome to Voices from the Frontlines. Hey, Eric. Um, this is a little off-topic. I'm sorry, but I thought you might want you, you want to know, and I know the community, the KPFK community wants to know. This is Anna Kunkin. I'm Art Kunkin's daughter, who founded the Los Angeles Free Press. Mm. Wow. And uh, he, which was the first underground newspaper in the country. Yes. And he just passed away an hour ago. Oh, wow. And um, I just, you're the first uh, media that I'm contacting. <laughs> well, it means a lot. Thank you so much, Anna. Um, you know, when I got out of prison, I uh, came to, that's the first time I ever went to the West. I didn't know what the West Coast was. I just was in East, you know, Harlem, New York, Philly. And I went to L.A. And there was the L.A. Free Press. And it was rather amazing. I mean, it was uh, back then, sort of half hippie, half revolutionary, very all over the place. They had, uh, what do you call it, uh, newsstands? Uh, what do you call those boxes mm-hmm. where you can get them? I mean, it was a major institution. Uh, tell us a few, mi- we only have a few minutes, Anna, but you want to tell one story about your dad? Oh, God. Um, yeah. Um, I remember they, the, the free press used to host um, be-ins and love-ins in Elysium Park mm. and Griffith Park. And um, one time there was a love-in and there was live music in Elysium Park. And um, the place was packed with teenagers and everybody was having a great time. And the cops showed up and there was like a huge danger of them coming in and, and causing a riot. And everybody started freaking out and running around crazy. And my dad got up on the stage and just started talking calmly and told, and this is a bunch of teenagers, you know, and they're just like going nuts. Here come the cops. They're all freaked out. And he just started talking to them calmly and said, "Um, everybody just sit down. Just be calm. Sit down and breathe. And they did. And there was no riot that day. Thank you so much. You know, you can reach me at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. I'd love to continue the conversation. Thank you so much for calling in. It's very cool. You're very, very, welcome. very sorry about your dad. Thank you. Okay. A life Bye-bye. certainly well lived. Um, all right, David, I hope you're calling about uh, to talk to Jeanette because that's who's going to answer, regardless of what you say. <laughs> Yeah, I'm calling in in regards to Venezuela uh, predicament and situation mm-hmm. in our days and times. I was raised up in the struggle in the black community in Southern California, all over Southern California and in New York. I've seen a lot with the Latinos and black. I went to the big revolutionary meeting. Uh, I mean, events in 2006, was it, when they were revolting, uh, Hispanics were um, Central Americans because... George Bush was uh, threatening to send people out the country. And I went and supported and I remember I got interviewed because I was one of the only African-Americans. And it was probably about 100,000 people out there. My thing is, is right now I'm active. I'm a socialist. 
an African-American socialist. I'm active in the community from Los Angeles all the way through to Vegas. I'm always going around the country. I want to know how I can help mm-hmm. get how I can help uh, organize, not just mobilize, but organize African-Americans to support our brothers and sisters in Venezuela through these trying times because I just, I, I, I got my university degree over in Africa. Mm-hmm. And I've studied, and I've seen a lot. And I just, David, let me say this. this you did great. Uh, I want to be able, Jeanette, to respond. Can you send us an email at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com or info at thestrategycenter.org? We will definitely get back to you because we're going to be planning to organize in the black and Latino community on Venezuela. So we'll take the answer off Can the air. Okay. Oh, so Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com, which is the same as the name of the show. We'd love to hear from you, David. Go ahead, Jeanette. Yeah, thank you, David, so much for your question. I think that's the question of the hour. Um, And I want to make sure that people who are listening know really briefly what what did take place today. Good old duh. Before (laughs) before we wrap up. Oh, God. um, But it's important to frame, you know, today within this history of struggle because that's what is not talked about in the shorts that people see in the media, you know, all over. Um, today, you know, Juan Guaido, who declared himself in on January 23rd, the, the interim president of Venezuela, again on social media, called for his supporters to descend upon um, Miraflores presidential palace and called upon the military to defect and um, orchestrate a coup against Nicolás Maduro. Um, and Essentially, what we saw today was another show of the Venezuelan people and their government um, under the democratically elected leadership of Nicolás Maduro um, control what could have been a very volatile situation. But also, um, we saw that Juan Guaido and and Leopoldo López, who also violated his house arrest today, Mm. um, who is one of the architects of the violent Guarimbas in 2014, which took the lives of 43 people, and in 2017 took the lives of over 130 people. Um, And many, I want to emphasize, you know, just a trigger warning for folks who are listening, there were many people who were uh, who are Afro-Venezuelans who were targeted for being Chavistas and for being black and who were lynched and um, essentially set uh, a fire and burnt alive. Um, the first one was Orlando Figuera in 2017, um, who you can actually watch video of him um, uh, being lynched by essentially a white opposition um, mob. And, um, you know, there was a very small group of National Guard officers, um, approximately 20 or 30, um, who tried to um, take over the Carlota um, military base. Um, They were unsuccessful. And um, essentially tomorrow is May 1st, which is International Workers' Day, and Venezuelans are ready and riled up to to show the world that they are committed to their revolutionary process. So, you know, April 30th, in the last four months of, you know, coup attempts, uh, the coup attempts attempted intervention via, you know, the lie or the farce of military aid, um, electrical outages, Venezuelans, April 30th is marked again in this history of achievements um, in their national defense. And so 
what can people do? There are different um, coalitions that have emerged in the last several months and year, actually. Um, one of the main ones is the campaign to end U.S. and Canada sanctions. Um, and you can find out more information um, at the Alliance for Global Justice website. You can also find the campaign to end U.S. and Canada sanctions online. It's a coalition working group of different um, organizations, individuals, um, anti-war activists, etc., who are committed to stopping U.S. sanctions and Canadian sanctions. And I think one of the demands that we should add to that is also the return and repair of yes, Venezuelan resources. That's right. Um, in addition to that, um, there's a webinar tonight um, at 5 p.m. that you can still register for. There was a delegation um, of folks who visited Venezuela um, the first week of April, first week and a half. Wow. And they will How be sharing. Um, you can register online at the Alliance for Global Justice website. Okay. I think it's afgj.org, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and you can sign up. Even if you can't watch the webinar at 5 o'clock tonight, let's say you're working, you're commuting, etc. Sign up for it and you will get a recording. Oh, that's wonderful. And so that's incredibly important. Um, if you or other people you know are in Washington, D.C. or New York in particular, but Washington, D.C. right now because that's the main headquarters of the Venezuelan embassy, there has been a collective of solidarity activists who have protected the Venezuelan embassy from U.S. Secret Service and also Venezuelan opposition um, followers of Juan Guaido and also his, you know, alleged diplomatic staff from illegally seizing the Venezuelan embassy. Um, the solidarity activists that are there have been there for weeks, um, essentially living in the Venezuelan embassy. Um, there are no diplomatic staff um, from Venezuela in the United States currently. And so right. all of their buildings and offices are vulnerable <laughs> to wow. U.S. seizure, which is illegal. Um, and so it's incredibly important uh, that people gather and support mm -hmm. the embassy in D.C. Um, I want to also emphasize that if you're part of an organization or a group, solidarity statements are incredibly important right now. Um, also, mentioning and denouncing U.S. warfare tomorrow at all May 1st rallies yes, and marches yes, is incredibly yes. important and vital. We need to let our people know exactly what's going on um, with the misinformation campaign that's happening. You know, folks think that Venezuela is in a humanitarian crisis and that the U U.S. intervention is necessary to restore peace and democracy, and that's actually a farce. Uh, in the last minute, I just want to say that I was thinking again of what to do is that voices from the front lines, you know, we, we made a major commitment to Standing Rock, and we had Candy Mossett on with us four straight weeks, for, for wherever she was, oh, yeah. in the midst, surrounded by troops. We raised money on the air. I'd like to do something similar with you, Jeanette, and others, to, to run this not simply as a show, but as a, a campaign within Voices from the Front Lines. I want to apologize to Susie in a hurry, Walter in L.A., really, that, that I wanted to make sure that Jeanette got the information on what to do. Again, please write to us at eric at Voices from the Front Lines or info at thestrategycenter.org. Any comments you make will be read on the air, critical or otherwise. So with this, I know calling in is very important, but please write to us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Channing and Jeanette, you get the last true word. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. It's truly a historic moment right now, and I want to encourage people to follow the news. Um, Venezuela Analysis is doing hourly coverage on Venezuela, based in Venezuela. Tell us your English. Um, check, check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Okay. Okay, everybody, all power to the people. Thanks so much for listening. A life that's full of